Well, if you would please turn to the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained were the popular forms of Roman entertainment, the theater with its risque performances, the chariot races, and the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. Christian lifestyle also condemned the so-called pleasures of an indulgent temper, sex outside marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. This, combined with the Christian's refusal to burn incense to the emperor, a gesture of civic gratitude intended to assure the well-being of the empire, earned Christians the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. Well, that's what Karen Jobes wrote of the situation of Christians uh, in the ancient Roman Empire and especially Peter's audience in Asia Minor. Does that sound at all familiar to you? It sounds a little familiar to me. Why is the Christian life like this? Why do we endure this kind of suffering for believing in a message that brings life to people? Well, we begin to see an answer to this here in the first verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ also suffered in the flesh. In just the same way that we do, he suffered it worse and he suffered it unjustly. But still, suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith. For Christ is the preeminent example of the principle that for faith in in God you will suffer. But Christ's suffering led to his glory. And that's what Peter is highlighting in these few verses here. Do you want to share in Christ's glory? Then persevere through suffering. For every single one of us will face some type of unjust suffering on account of faith in Christ. And it covers the scale. Some people uh, take insults for the name of Christ, but some people take or are killed for the sake of faith in Christ and every kind of suffering in between these extremes. 
But Peter's message to people who are suffering is to take heart, for this suffering is a sign that you are walking faithfully. And one day you will enjoy that perfect blessedness that Christ himself enjoys together with God. And so what does it take to endure suffering? It takes a new way of thinking. A way of thinking that is shared by Christ himself. We can look at three different forms that this new way of thinking takes. We can see in verses 1 and 2 that we think of God's will rather than human passions. In 3 and 4 that you think of the destructiveness of sin. And in verses 5 and 6 that you think of the promised joys of life in the Spirit. So God's will, the destructiveness of sin, and the promised joys of life in the Spirit. So first, in verses 1 and 2, we see that if you want to live for God's will, if you want to abandon human passages and live for God, you must adopt Christ's way of thinking. It says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we see this word way of thinking. It's one Greek word, enoion, and it refers to a mindset that leads to right moral action. And we see this repeated, this same word repeated several times in the Greek translation of the Proverbs. For example, in Proverbs 2, 11 through 13, it says, Discretion will walk over you. Anoion, understanding, will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. So Peter is calling you to adopt a mindset that will guide you in the right way. And this phrase, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, is most likely the the way of thinking that Peter is endorsing here. Have this thought in your mind that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, Peter uses the flesh a little differently from the way that Paul uses. We are probably used to thinking of the dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit in Paul. But Peter uses the flesh several times in this passage and in the letter to refer to earthly life before death. And here he uses suffering especially to refer to unjust suffering. Again, a repeated theme throughout his letter. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever, whoever has suffered unjustly in this life has ceased from sin. Choosing obedience despite the pressure that unjust suffering brings to you is a sign of the triumph over sin that you enjoy in Christ. And so you can see why Peter uses military terminology. He says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. It takes dedication and resolve to stand in battle. If you're not mentally prepared through experience and training, it's impossible to stand in battle. Perhaps another way to think about it is of being an athlete. When I I go for a run, I run for two and a half miles, and after one mile, I think, I don't want to be out here. 
I'm hungry. I'm tired. Well, at that rate, I'm never going to win the Olympic marathon. That's not the mindset that is shared by these champion athletes. And you see the, the pain that they have to push through in order that they can reach that finish line. It takes mental training and fortitude, not just physical. And so you see, again, this life, enduring suffering in the flesh. It takes preparation. It takes mental fortitude. It is a gift from God. And this was the mindset that Christ shared. It says in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So there's some insight into Christ's mindset as he comes down to earth from heaven. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Christ endured suffering. He endured exactly the kind of unjust suffering that Peter is encouraging us to endure. And Jesus triumphed over the dominion of sin. And he triumphed over the dominion of sin in you, as we see here in verse 2, that this new mindset empowers you to live for God's will. And it says that you live for the rest of the time in the flesh. He empowers you to live in God's will now. The rest of the time in the flesh, your life until you reach the finish line. So you don't need to wait until the resurrection to live faithfully to God. Peter wrote at the beginning of his letter of the inheritance that we will gain when Christ returns. But here in this verse, he is saying you enjoy a foretaste of that blessed life in heaven when you live according to God's will now. We'll enjoy it in its fullness and we will walk in perfect righteousness in the life to come. But now, by enduring unjust suffering, you can put away, uh, hum- uh, you can put away uh, human passions, but live in the will of God. For these are the two options before you. Human passions and the will of God. And the thing is that's tricky about human passions, they don't always give the appearance of great evil, do they? Some human passions look reasonably good and yet lead to the same place as the appalling wickedness that we see some people living in. I'm reminded of the path that Orpah took as opposed to the path that Ruth took back in Ruth chapter 1. For Naomi wishes to both her daughters-in-law, may you find the Lord's rest, may you find husbands and families and provision in Moab. But Ruth goes to be with the true God, and Orpah returns to Moab. And the funny thing is, if you look at it with human sight, there's nothing wrong with Orpah's decision. She has good prospects for marriage back home. She has a family to take care of her. She did the safe thing. But she didn't do the thing that God commends. She didn't walk with God. And so we don't see that she 
got attacked by a lion or struck by lightning on her way back to Moab, but we never see her again in the story of redemption. And human passions can be like that. They don't always come with blinking lights and a wrong way do not enter sign, do they? In fact, sometimes they look very much like the good things that we desire, even commendable things. It's a good thing, God says, to be married and to have children. But sometimes we are led to seek them in the wrong ways. So God calls us to walk in the will of God. He doesn't call us to pursue the good things in life. He calls us to pursue him and walk in his will. And by Christ's Uh, by, by Christ's redemption applied to you, you no longer are under control of these sinful desires. For they have been put to death in you, even now in the flesh. Now we wrestle with them and we fight them and sometimes we stumble and fall. And yet, Christ picks you up and he empowers you to walk more and more in step with God, in step with his will. And you can see it especially when you endure suffering, when you endure mockery, when you endure pressure to conform to this world and you stay faithful to God. You can see it and you can see the progress that God works in you through his Holy Spirit. Not a single one of us is the same as we were five years ago, a year ago, longer ago. God is faithful. God is at work in you. And so by being armed with this way of thinking that Christ shares, that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, you can forsake human passions and live for the will of God. And this way of thinking also leads you to see the destructiveness of sin and especially your former habits of sin. For Peter writes, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, Peter is not here addressing these Gentiles who are engaged in those activities. He's addressing you. You once lived this way, and you have had enough. The time that has passed suffices. And so if you share this mindset, you know that you have had enough of sin. Think about what your life was like before you knew Christ. Or if you've known him as far as you can remember, think about what it might have been without him. It ought to fill you with revulsion that you once lived this way. I think of the dumb things that I did, foolish and hurtful things that I did to people. And I wasn't found in this list. Orgies? Drinking parties? No, that wasn't me before I knew Christ. And yet I was foolish, I was unkind, I was mean-spirited, I was angry. So not everybody may have such a sordid history as what Peter lists here. But all sins are the same. The wages of sin is death. And if you have fallen short in one point of the law, you are guilty of all of it. And so these sins ought to fill you with revulsion. It ought to shock you that you once lived this way. When you recognize sin for what it is, you see what God has done for you. And you refuse to participate 
in, this, in these sins any longer. And you see that it is worth it to stand apart from sin, even if you're going to suffer for it. And you will suffer. For it says that with respect to this, they, those Gentiles, are surprised. Christians, at the time that Peter wrote this letter, Christians were abandoning centuries of ancestral tradition in favor of a novel religion. They were sliding the gods who guaranteed civic peace, a fruitful harvest, and freedom from natural disaster. That's what their contemporaries thought, at least. They could not see that these practices were sin, because living in this way that Peter condemns is just sort of standard. It's just what you do. And so it's no wonder when, when you think of the benefits that they thought happened when they lived this way, it's no wonder that the Greco-Roman culture around them thought the Christians were traitors. Well, the world around us finds it shocking that we live by a different standard, that we live by the will of God. These these sins, these vices that Peter lists in verse 3, it's indistinguishable from much of society around us, isn't it? They think that the these sorts of pleasures are the best thing that one can live for. That this is what's good for a human being. And so Christians are standing in the way of what's good for people. And they don't have the imagination to think that maybe there is a God who is wiser than me and who knows what is better for me. They can't even picture it. So they are surprised and dismayed when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery because they think of their activities as harmless. Now, it says here in the ESV, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. It's a little more colorful in, in Greek. When you do not rush headlong with them into the same raging torrent of debauchery. The, the people that Peter is speaking of, they think that they're sitting by the infinity pool some, at some resort in the South Pacific, enjoying a Mai Tai and a good book. But they are diving headfirst into a raging torrent. It may be the only, the, the only time that the stock question, if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it, has ever been justified. They are gleefully running into a deluge, and they're so blind that they can't even see it for what it is. And to be fair, not everybody in Peter's time or in our time is this bad, indulges in these sins and these excesses to the ultimate degree. You read the Greek philosophers, and uh, most, if not all of them, con- con- condemned this sort of excess. And yet, as we'll see in verse 5, no human philosophy can save you from the deluge. It's all a raging torrent. It's not what God calls his people to live. And God knows what is best. 
but they don't see it, and so they malign you, it says here. Now, when I was in high school at a youth group summer camp, I, I, a youth pastor uh, was telling the story of his conversion to faith in Christ, and he had the, he kept the same friends that he had from before, just for a little while. And he remembered one night, they were out with the pickup truck, I imagine by a lake, but I can't remember. And his buddies were drinking beer, they were underage. The youth pastor wasn't drinking beer anymore. And all of a sudden, they surround him, and they pour out a can of beer on them, and they say, it's a beer baptism, buddy. Well, he wasn't amused. But that's, that's what his friends thought about it. That's what his friends thought about his newfound faith in Christ. And we've all experienced something like that. Now, our society claims to be accepting. And yet, in reality, there's an expectation that you live in a certain way. Or at the very least, don't say anything against those who do. Even in the first century, the Judeo-Christian tradition was unique in labeling other religions as idolatrous and sinful. It was fine to worship Jesus. It was not fine to get in the way of those who don't. And so in our day, Christians are looked at as repressed, sexually naive, slaves to an ancient and backwards book, and seeking to enslave others. For libertinism is the only true freedom. And so you see the need for a change of heart to endure. You see the need for this new way of thinking, for recognizing that even when you are suffering people's misunderstanding, people's trying to persuade you otherwise, you need this change of heart to see that they are not sitting by a calm lake, but that they are jumping into a torrent that will lead to their destruction. Because it is much easier to go along with the crowd. Literally imagine being in a crowd all running into the Willamette River. It is very difficult to stand against that crowd, and you need strength and determination to do it. And this is why doctrine is so important as well. One of the things that has, have, has really come to my attention in the last year or so is having a developed confession of faith and catechisms like we do really is such a gift because they go into detail and they show us all different kinds of aspects of what it means to live for God. And I don't mean to throw shade on any of our brothers and sisters at churches that may have, say, a five or a ten-point statement of faith on their website, but it can't cover the same breadth of content and the same breadth of situations that we cover in historic creeds and confessions. So, just a point in favor of learning your catechism and your confession of faith. They really are helpful because they teach us in greater detail what it means to have this changed heart, what it is that we can believe, what it is that we can think about, and how it is that by God's grace we can stand against the crowd that wants to shove us off the bridge into the flood. And it leads us also to think of life in the Spirit, the life that is waiting for us as we turn to verses 5 and 6. 
For the people that Peter is speaking of think that they're living life to the fullest, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, ancient pagans, just like most, of, most people today, believed that death was the end. There's no judgment waiting for you. There's nothing to follow after you shuffle off this mortal coil. And so when, when the opponents of the Christians saw Christians dying for their, just, just the same as anybody else, they would think, well, what good is Christianity anyway? Why bother? And while we can, we can now see the folly of living the way the Gentiles do, what we see here is that one day they will come face to face with that fact as well. For judgment is coming. And not only for the living, but also for the dead. Death is not an escape if you reject Christ. And death doesn't mean the gospel did you no good if you received Christ. But he stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And so those who are outside of Christ will have to explain themselves for their misdeeds. When I was in ninth grade, one time uh, I was goaded into saying some truly vile things about somebody else uh, as a pronouncement on the school bus. Uh, Things that you will not get me to repeat either in this pulpit or out of this pulpit. And I didn't think much of it in the moment, but it was not fun sitting across the desk of the dean of students the next day or sitting across the living room from my mom and dad. And I couldn't even get myself to say the things that I had said. That's how it's going to be for those who do not trust in Christ, who live the way that Peter is speaking of in this passage. Now, I imagine that one way or another, the words will come out of their mouths, and they will know that they are in the wrong. For God is ready to judge. And because God is ready, you can be sure that it's coming. It's written in chapter 1, verse 5, that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. All that waits is for God's right moment to reveal it. It's prepared. It's waiting. All that we're waiting for is the right time. And for those who are in Christ, for those who put their trust in him, judgment and salvation will coincide. And in fact, this judgment is an aspect of your salvation because those who persecute you will be dealt with. Those who persecute God's children will be dealt with at the judgment. And you will not have to suffer them any longer. And Peter moves on here in verse 6 to write of how those who believe in the gospel are in fact delivered from this judgment. You will give an account, but you'll give an account as one who has been forgiven as one who does not face the punishment for your sins because they've been poured out on Christ. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, some people have said that this refers to preaching the gospel to 
people once they are dead. But that's not what Peter's saying here. The gospel was preached into the pa- in the past to those who are now dead when they were alive. That's what Peter's saying here. So Peter is emphasizing that this natural death that all human beings will endure unless Christ returns first, this natural death is not a sign that Christ did them no good. The gospel saved them regardless. So that though judged in the flesh the way people are, and again, remember, Peter uses in the flesh to refer to this earthly life. And this word behind the way people are, it, it seems to me that it's saying according to human standards. So though, they, so though those who believed in Christ were judged while they were alive by their fellow human beings who hate Christ, they were judged according to the standards of this world and made to suffer for it. They will live in the Spirit the way that God does. So the dead in Christ, even now, enjoy God's blessedness. They enjoy his favor, even now, while their bodies rest in the grave. They enjoy God's presence now in the Spirit. So if you have this mindset, if you share this mindset from Christ that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, this is the blessed faith that awaits you. So you, by faith in Christ, are set free from the judgment that is awaiting those who live according to human passions. For death is not the end. Death is not the end for the wicked or the righteous. For the wicked will suffer the just punishment for their sins. But those who die in Christ will be acquitted and will eternally live with him in his blessedness. So the gospel is preached. The gospel is preached to all kinds of people so that those who entrust themselves to Christ may have every confidence of eternal life and an inheritance in the kingdom of God. For the gospel of Jesus Christ works a change in you. By the Holy Spirit, you are enabled to live for God's will rather than human passions. You're enabled to see the destructiveness of the sin that you once walked in. You're enabled to see this destructiveness even though the world eggs you on to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And you're given confidence that you will survive death and live in the Spirit. Essentially, you recognize that suffering in this life is a sign that you're being made like Christ. And one day, he will conform you to Christ in glory so that you may enjoy eternal life with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gift of confidence that you give us. And we pray that you would help us to walk more steadfastly in this mindset that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Father, we pray that you would fill us with confidence. Give us determination to stand against anybody who calls us to live otherwise. And we look forward to the day when our Savior returns and he will take us home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.